You're taught that this is what police do. You stick together. You go after these others. Like, they were still human beings. So, I mean, the idea of kicking someone in the face while they were defenseless was just ridiculous. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, my friends, to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 128, and we've got a heck of a show today. If you want to learn more about what you're going to hear in today's show, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash 128. And before we get into the show, I have to briefly mention the amazing package put together by our friends at Health Excellence Select. If you are sick and tired of dealing with health insurance companies, of dealing with all the Obamacare mandates, Health Excellence Select is just for you. You can learn more at lionsofliberty.com health. And if you're a fan of this show... Or even if it's your first time listening, I have no doubt you're going to love what our friend Dan McCall is doing over at Liberty Maniacs, creating some amazing political and satirical gear from t-shirts, mugs, bumper stickers, you name it, he's got it. And as a listener of this program, you can receive a 10% discount on your entire order by using the discount code Lions of Liberty. My guest today is a retired Baltimore police officer and veteran of the United States Marine Corps. He recently made the news for publicly speaking out against police brutality in his department. He's been tweeting out all sorts of terrible things he saw during his time as a member of the Baltimore PD, and I'm pleased to welcome him here today. Michael Wood, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Well, Michael, it's great to speak with you. I mean, I already heard you speak to Joe Rogan for a couple hours, so I, I got a pretty good idea of your story here. And obviously your tweets, I don't know if you thought your tweets would catch on like they did, but they really did catch on. They even made the Huffington Post. We'll get into more of that stuff in a bit, but first I want to get a little bit more of your background. So why don't you just start off telling us about yourself? What led you to become a Marine and later on a police officer? What drove you to pursue that path in life? Well, I would love for it to be an interesting story. But I was just that little boy that everybody knows at some point in time that just was always going to be a cop. It was, I'm going to be a cop. This is what I'm going to do. So that was always my destination. I was going to be a cop. You just knew that when you were a kid. This was like, this was the dream. You saw the, the police officers on the street or on TV maybe and said, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. And you know, like, I would love to say that it's because I wanted to help people and I wanted to do all this. But I was a kid, and when those, those thoughts formulated, I'm sure I wanted to play cops and robbers, you know? And I wanted to be on the good guy side, I'm sure, and that just mentality stuck. Where does that come from? I'm just curious, because, I mean, obviously when you're young, you all ever want to be the cowboy or the, or the fireman or what have you, but were you influenced at all by media, by watching cops, or by watching other, other police-type shows? What really like, helped you form that in your mind, that you, you wanted to do this? I have no idea, but obviously that would make perfect sense. You know, sit there and you watch cop shows, you watch Knight Rider. I mean, uh, that's <laughs> that's my age. So I watch Knight Rider and I watch Gargoyles and Batman and all that stuff. So you, you still have that, that Dark Knight kind of idolatry that you have as a kid. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you went right from the Marine Corps, basically right into the police department after you came back. So can you just tell us about that transition? Well, yeah, there was a little bit of a law, but I went into the Marine Corps at 17 because I was a little wild and thought I needed some discipline to, to get down and uh, focus on what I needed to get done. So there's a little bit, about a year hiring process. It's really a pain in the butt getting hired being a police. So when I went into the police department, it felt like a very smooth transition. Uh, the police department is incredibly less trained and less disciplined. And 
uh, it doesn't have that rigid structure of the Marine Corps, but it's it's a natural flow. It's a, a smooth transition, really. Did it almost seem like you were more advanced than they are in terms of discipline and that sort of thing that you had gotten from the Marine Corps? Yeah, and I certainly wasn't alone, though. I, I think in my academy class, there, there was at least five other Marines. Though That group of people would kind of branch off into a little uh, clique. I'm curious kind of how much that Marine mentality in terms of, okay, we're in a war zone here, we're fighting a war. Did that directly carry over to sort of your attitude as a police officer? I guess the concept of having someone to fight flowed naturally because we obviously we have the drug war. We are engaged in a war against the citizens. That's what policing has become. But I still I really think that the disciplined military member is going to be a better cop. I, I think that wholly and it's not because of the war it's because of the discipline that trumps the mentality overall I think so I, I know you were in, in the police department for a long time I believe it was what 10 or 11 years and uh, so when did things start to actually I guess feel uneasy for you obviously you saw a lot of things over the years but when did you reach a point where you started to think man maybe I just I can't do this anymore well I didn't have a choice but to leave I was injured and they they kick you out ah. so it's not like I chose to go out by all guesses you would assume that I would still be there if I wouldn't have gotten injured. The frustration I had the whole time was internal. So I felt like I could see that policing was unprofessional and that we lacked a lot of skills. And I was actively trying to fix that. The absolute frustration that made me start saying things was seeing just the overall society and the uses of forces coming out and police completely not taking responsibility for it. It's like we're just in complete denial of what we are. And somebody needs to come out and say, this is what we are and this needs to be fixed. Interesting. So was it really more that you were removed from the force anyway, out of your own control through your injury? And then that did that give you sort of time to reflect a little bit? And then combining that with obviously the headlines in Baltimore, obviously we all know the Freddie Gray incident and, and the riots that occurred after that. Is that the kind of what spurred you to speak out? There was an element of that, but it was a slower transition. So there was things I realized when I was into the department where I would develop a little bit more empathy and understand that the difference between the cop and the criminal was most likely something that was completely out of our control and was just a a result of society at the time and the situations we were in. I could see that the only difference between that kid that was standing on the corner selling drugs and me was that I got lucky on where I lived and what color skin I had. And I didn't get in trouble for the things that a lot of these kids would get in trouble for. So you had that developing while I was in. Then when I got out, I switched my degree, I have my undergrad is in criminal justice, and I switched my master's to management. And you start trying to think about things such as metrics and how you're actually going to achieve the goals you want to achieve. Critically think about what your mission is, your milestones, how to get there. And you quickly realize that policing has the wrong metrics, the wrong ideas. It's not even led by science, it's led by an ideology. So we're doing it all wrong. And as I got to see that I was doing it all, we were doing it all wrong, everything came out in the media. And I think the Tamir Rice video just really set me off the way the police were still defending that. Like this, this young boy was assassinated by a law enforcement officer and like other law enforcement is going, well, you know, you don't know. It's okay. We're going to defend him. Like you, you can't do that. That was just unbelievable to me. 
And that's even after we had a video in that case of Tamir Rice, pretty much a, a complete video of the incident where the officer essentially rolled up and shot the kid. I mean, there, there wasn't much more to it. There, there was no thought process there. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It was, it was like an assassination. There was no way you could defend this action. And then I'm still thinking naively in my head, it won't happen in Baltimore. It won't happen here. We wouldn't do that. And then it happened here, and it was the same thing. Like, our union just was becoming disgusting in the things they were saying. They were using the children of dead officers to exploit their vulnerability to try and get sympathy for these for an inexcusable situation of Freddie Gray being killed. It was just like, that's it. You know, we are in complete denial. Let's talk about it. And I didn't think that the national media was going to talk about it. Let's talk about that Freddie Gray case for a minute, because maybe you can provide some insight sort of on, on how how something like this even happens. I mean, uh, let's just start with his arrest, first of all. I mean, he was arrested. I, I'm not sure. He was initially, uh, maybe you know more than I do, but I mean, I guess they just he just ran for the cops when he saw cops. And so that, that inspired the chase. And then I guess he was actually arrested for, was it, was it a spring assessed pocket knife, which I didn't even know was illegal, but maybe in Baltimore it is. You are correct in your assumption. So he ran most likely, you know, we don't want to say bad things about the man, but let's be realistic. Most likely it's because he was dealing. So he saw the cops and he ran and that way he could throw away the drugs and get away from the drug charge. So when they chased him, he obviously got rid of it if he had it. If he, I mean, he could have ran for any other reason. But they stop him under that suspicion and end up searching him. So my problem legally comes in this search anyway. Scholar, legal people want to argue this, but the cops never made the claim of a Terry stop. So whatever they argue isn't what was documented. By their documentation, it's an illegal search. And it's a, it's a spring-assisted pocket knife which isn't even illegal. Can you just clarify uh, just what a Terry stop is? Sure. So it results from Terry versus Ohio case where you have the characteristics of an armed person and a suspicion criminal activity is afoot. And you can stop that person and conduct a frisk of their outer garments to see if they have a weapon. And they have to have reason to believe that they are armed with a weapon in that case. Is that right? Right. So you would have to display some signs as some characteristics of an armed person, which have to be detailed, documented, reported separately. It's not like this throwaway thing like it was in New York. It's, it's a serious issue. You're detaining somebody and you're, you're violating their freedoms. So you, you have to have a, a standard and you have to document that well. None of that was done in the Freddie case. A spring-assisted pocket knife. So if you think of a, a regular blade that flips out that you do with your thumb and you, you open it, spring-assisted just means that there's a little spring inside that makes opening it slightly easier. You're going to see more of that knife than you do of a non-spring-assisted pocket knife these days because they just flip out easier. They're, they're more convenient. Nowhere else in Maryland County surrounding the city is that illegal. So you have every area that's a majority white area, that's not even illegal to begin with. In the city, it is illegal through a city ordinance. But the whole problem there is, is you got it illegal and you're arresting somebody for an offense that you never arrest anyone else for in the white neighborhoods other than those really low-income black areas for that much. If Michael Wood's walking around and has that knife, no problem. I mean, no problem. I mean, there's going to be construction workers uh, that are Hispanic and construction workers that are white who are walking around these neighborhoods fixing houses. And none of these people get locked up for a spring-assisted pocket knife. I would love to see the stats on that. There's just no way. Despite the, obviously the arrest itself is very sort of suspicious in how it went down, or at least a little shady, although maybe it's very common. But how do we go from that to a broken neck in a police van? It just, I don't understand how that can even occur. 
other than just outright assaulting the guy. I mean, yeah. The reason I think that happened is because of the the extreme us versus them. So we don't see the citizens that we're dealing with as human beings. You can't tell me that if those officers were truly viewing Freddie Gray as a fellow human being, maybe they're, let's even go their cousin or their brother or somebody in their family, a good friend that they went to high school with, they would never handcuff him and put him and, and cuff his feet together, shackle his feet and put him in a metal box defenseless and drive around a city. I mean, there's just no way you would treat another human being that way that you had any empathy for. And a lot of the tweets you sent out really emphasize this point of, of how it is – you're clearly not treating – not you specifically, maybe you at sometimes, I'm sure – but how police, at least in Baltimore from your experience, often don't see the, the them, I guess in this case, as humans. And I just want to read a couple of the tweets that you sent out here. A detective slapping a completely innocent female in the face for bumping into him coming out of a corner chicken store punting a handcuffed face down suspect in the face after a foot chase my handcuffs not my boot or suspect this one just blew me away pissing and shitting inside suspects homes during raids on their beds and clothes these are clearly not things that regular people do to their fellow man even people they don't know they run into on the street i mean any normal person that gets bumped into on the street will usually go oh excuse me or they might even be in a bad mood and say watch out but they're probably not going to slap someone in the face so what fosters this mentality where when that uniform is on, you suddenly don't see people as other people. Yeah, I mean, I can only speculate to a certain point because while I am guilty of that, I think I'm guilty of it for a largely different reason than most of these stories are. I'm guilty of it because I try to do the right thing. You're taught that this is what police do. You stick together. You go after these others. Like, they were still human beings, so, I mean, the idea of kicking someone in the face while they were defenseless was just ridiculous. And I still didn't intervene, and that that, that makes me just as guilty. I, I have no problem admitting that, and the, the point is we have to admit that and, and find a way to fix it. But that is what you see. I mean, that's not the only guy that got hit while he was handcuffed while I was there. There's plenty of examples of that. And I, I find that, like, particularly egregious, not because you're hitting somebody but because they're at their most vulnerable and you're at your most powerful it, it like reminds me of the batman and joker scene in the dark knight you know where the where the joker's looking up and he's like what are you going to do with all this power when he resists and I, I feel like that's what the cops are they're just exercising that power against somebody that's so defenseless it's just exceptionally sick that way did you ever think about saying something or did you ever even maybe not officially, you know, saying anything to a, a higher officer? Did you ever just talk with your fellow officers about, man, I did, why did we just do that? Or why did this guy do that? Did, did any of those conversations ever occur? Or was it just really understood that, hey, we're all in this together. We're a team. We're a gang of sorts. So whatever we do, whatever we, we might all agree with it or not, we got to stick together and stand by each other and not question it. You had open disagreements. Really? We would argue with one another and you would think that that person was a bad person. Like what they did was wrong. And I, I don't know like why the unity trumps that wrong. I, I, I like to say that it's the us versus them thing. But I mean, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. And I can't get into the heads of other officers. It's just kind of my perception. And we go and we form this wall that if we talk amongst ourselves, that's fine. But you can't talk outside of yourself and outside would include like an IID or anything like that, or even supervisors. Um, so 
it's it's hard to understand that. Like Joey Crystal, he he was a he testified against some officers in a case, and with him, his supervisor after he testified, like I thought what Joey Crystal did was fine, and I thought like good because his supervisor, that guy was an asshole. He did all kinds of things. But the idea that I wouldn't say anything or that we also didn't say anything didn't seem like even like an available option. Like, yeah, we didn't like that guy, but it still was another cop. And Mike, you talk a lot about racism in the police department and, and kind of how it's institutionalized. But I mean, even just looking at the Freddie Gray case, you look at the, the officers being brought up. Half of them are white. Half of them are African-American. So how is this racism? And I don't know if that's representative of the police force overall in Baltimore. But but I mean, I, there's obviously a significant um, African-American portion of the, the Baltimore PD. So how does such a, a system that seems so racist uh, on its core, how is it perpetuated by people who are, are many of which are of the same race that is that is the, the racism is sort of against, if that makes sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. In Baltimore, it's actually roughly 50-50. So there, there is a lot of black officers in Baltimore. And that's one of the reasons why I naively thought it wouldn't happen in Baltimore. But what it really is, is they become into the culture just like everyone else. All of society teaches you that the police are the good guys. So when you join the police, you're doing what the good guys are doing. We don't see the racist undertones until, well, at least even I didn't see it, until I kind of stood outside of it. They don't understand that, for instance, if you're targeting 16 to 24-year-old black males, and that's what you're being told, well, then you go look for that. Sorry for interrupting, but were you were you specifically told to target 16 and 24 black males? I mean, was that an actual sort of top-down edict? Sure, and, but that's that. It's not you're 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 thinking that this is a Baltimore thing. It's not. This is something that was talked about in my criminal justice degree. This is what's talked about in higher education when they say criminal profiling. This is what we're talking about, and it's legal. But so your thought process and the idea and even academia and criminal justice is that these are your repeat violent offenders. These are the people that commit crimes. This is a criminal profile, not a racist profile. So you focus your attention on them. But if we're doing things at the same rate, so even if it was just exactly that blacks committed 50% of crime and whites committed 50% of crime, and you kept focusing on the blacks, well, that's who you're going to catch. So they become the new metric, and that's okay, so here's your new criminal profile. And then you keep going after those same people because the result of your action is the basis for your action, and it's circular logic that doesn't make any sense. And you're not taught to see that because just like everywhere else, people are being taught what to think and not how to think. And once you're taught how to think, it becomes blatantly obvious that it's preposterous what we're doing in law enforcement. Wow. I mean, clearly, if you're taught from the beginning, even in, in criminal justice classes and that kind of thing, like, here's the profile. I mean, that kind of blows away what I'll hear a lot, the, the sort of the bad seed argument where people will say, well, look, yeah, look, we live in the Internet age. Everyone has Facebook. There's always going to be bad seeds everywhere in life. But really, all it is is just some isolated instances that are sort of exaggerated now because everyone, you know, everyone sees something on social media, they get outraged, they share it a million times, and suddenly now we think all cops are are brutal and and racist, and that that that's part of the system. But it it really sounds like, and I don't I don't think all cops are are like that at all. I'm talking to you right now, and you seem like a perfectly good, reasonable person. But uh, there's clearly something in that system that is perpetuated, regardless of of who's wearing the uniform. 
Right. So think about your metric. So an officer, to be determined whether you're good or to get better assignments, things like that, you're judged upon the number of arrests. You're not even judged upon the number of convictions. So you're not even necessarily getting a good case. You're just getting rewarded for violating somebody's right to freedom. And when you keep doing that, especially when a vast majority of this is because of a drug war that we know is failing, then you're just perpetuating the cycle of everything that you're doing and no one understands <laughs> what you're actually going to do. So if you would just make the metric crime reduction or felonies on your post or uh, you know what kind of trash is laying around your neighborhood and we're actually a community officer who looked out and had power to change in the neighborhood well, then cops would be doing different things because that's what we would be judging them by. But even the literature is all suggestive of judging officers by these numbers that they bring in. I mean, that's Comstat. This is like this in New York. It's this famous thing. You can watch it in The Wire in Baltimore. And it's a terrible system of reducing people to statistics. And, and, and how many of those people you can take off the street and put into the prison is your good job. It's just this massive, uh, massive numbers game. You know, we're going to put X amount of people away for for X amount of time, and some other people are going to make X amount of dollars on it. And, and it seems like it's just that's that's the extent that the calculation is made. There's no no looking at the human cost. That the fact that every one of those statistics is an actual human being whose life is being ruined in some way or another, and many of those people. I mean, in my view, anyway, uh, this is a libertarian podcast, and I, my view of a crime is really not the same as what's you know, on the books as a crime. So to me, many of these people who have never hurt another person, if they're just engaging in, say, a consensual drug trade or that sort of thing, you know, they, they haven't really committed a crime, and yet these people's lives are being completely ruined by the system. Right. So any consensual adult agreement, I am 100% on board, should be completely legal and regulated. It doesn't make any sense. So you're criminalizing known normal human behavior. And so when you criminalize no normal behavior, then what you can do and the police are going to do is they're going to target the people who are lowest and have the least ability to resist. And our society has determined that poor blacks are the ones that are least able to resist. So that's where you're going to get the most focus of this attention towards. And then when they lash out and they revolt and uprise, everybody would be surprised and act like, oh, my God, can you believe this happening? I, I can't believe you don't believe. That, that it hasn't happened earlier. Uh, referring to, uh, obviously, we've seen several instances of... Any of them, yeah. Of riots, yeah. I mean, whether it's Baltimore or, or St. Louis or what have you, I mean, y you see police abuses, I mean... Everywhere we look, you see, you see Tamir Rice, as you mentioned before, Eric Garner in New York. I mean, that's that's one of the most tragic things I've ever seen. I mean, the guy was literally doing nothing but reselling some cigarettes to people. I mean, something that's not even illegal. If anything, he's just, you know, maybe not paying the taxes that they wanted to pay on it. And moments later, this guy's life is snuffed out. And we talk about justice and seeing justice in these cases. But a lot of times, I mean, in the Eric Garner case, the family won millions of dollars. And, and I think that's good in, in a sense. I mean, they, they should be compensated for his unlawful and uh, criminal, in my view, death. At the same time, who's paying that, that money? It's, it's the taxpayers of New York City. It's not, it's not coming out of the pockets of the people who actually committed this crime against him. So obviously you can't just swoop in and change the system. You're just trying to speak out. But do you have any thoughts on, on how we can actually see some justice in some of these cases or how we can actually change the mentality of policing in the United States. And this is obviously a large issue that is there's no, not going to be any magic wand to, uh, to change overnight. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm kind of divided with a lot of the community on, on my solutions for reform. Like all these wonderful ideas, they can only last for the limited amount of time that someone allows them to last. So they're all going to be temporary. A politician could come in and say, hey, we're going to change our metrics to this, or we're going to legalize marijuana and regulate it. And the very next one can come back and change it depending on what their interests are. So we have to evaluate who is running police departments. And the way our system is structured is politicians are running police departments. Politicians, we know, they serve the interests of their donors. They do not serve the interests of their voting base. To change that, we have to overrule Citizens United before you're even going to get a politician that can serve the people and isn't serving to the donors. So, so you think this all comes down to money, essentially? Everything does. I mean, this is the pr- this is the school to prison cycle. This is who we reap from, and and, and we we pilfer, and and it's this is nothing different. I mean, slavery was the same way. We're just pilfering from the backs of poor blacks, and we're still doing that. We're just doing it in more covert ways. So after we do that, we have to end the drug war. We have a war on our citizens. There's no way we're going to reform. As we continue to launch a war where in some way, shape or form, an officer is expected to chase Freddie Gray because he has maybe a pill of heroin in his pocket. That is preposterous that we even begin that cycle. So we have to end the drug war and intelligently figure out what our goals are and how we want to implement legalization and regulation. We know it will work. We abs- The science is in. We know how to do this. We've seen other examples. Colorado was a wonderful success, and there may be some mistakes there. It's the first try, but you can see it's successful there just as a rookie effort. We can fix this, but we can't keep doing it with a war. So once the war is over, then all these wonderful ideas can start to make a real change, and maybe we can change our metrics to crime reduction and really think about what we want our police to do. But until we do that, I just think all these efforts will be in vain. Yeah, I mean, I think you answered your own question there. You kind of set up your own statement there because, I mean, if you want to focus on crime reduction, hey, the best way to reduce crime is to make less stuff criminal, just like they're doing in Colorado. You know, they legalize marijuana. Well, suddenly there's a lot less crime to even even look out for. Uh, so that's certainly a huge step. Michael, I'm curious if you, know, you received any sort of either backlash or even maybe, you know, good compliments from police officers that you used to work with or just police officers in general. What is the, the general response been from the policing community to what you've been out there saying? I obviously get this a question a lot, and I'm still surprised by the answer to this. The only person that has ever challenged me has been anonymous internet trolls. That's not surprising at all to me. <laughs> as, someone, as someone who's been an internet libertarian for some time, uh, that's, that's like the number one place the way you receive criticism. So maybe this will surprise you. I've had at least five officers that I haven't spoken to in years call me and say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. It's the truth. It's a painful transition and we have to address it. And then I've gotten emails and contacts from officers all around the country, some of them in like rural towns in Iowa saying that, hey, the same mentality is here. It is not just cities. And, you know, these are some of the things that happened. Let me know how I can help. And we're starting to be able to formulate a little bit of a network of people that get this. And I think that the cops... This is why I don't name names, by the way, because I really think that we just have to have this discussion and people understand what we're doing. Listen to this. Think about 
what we're trying to achieve and how we can actually get there intelligently. And I think the cops will understand and start to see. Uh, Michael, before I let you go, I just want to give you a second to just give kind of one last statement, one last pitch, or what really is your vision for yourself going forward in your activism? Do you Obviously, I don't see you uh, returning to the Baltimore PD or, or any PD anytime soon. Uh, obviously, you can't do that with your injury, but but what do you plan to do going forward uh, and pushing this forward? Obviously, you've, you've started sort of gathering a network of, of people here, which is fantastic, but how do you see your activism, I guess, playing out here and continuing to speak out against police brutality and against this system? Well, I'm going to continue to work with LEAP. My original plan was always to go into academia and teach. That's why I'm doing my PhD now. Obviously, this the end result of this is becoming much less clear now. I think that I owe it not just for what I did wrong, but to improve our profession and to the future of our kids so we can try and change this, that I'm going to do what I can as long as I have a stage and as long as I'm allowed to. Uh, we have a bunch of projects going into the works where we're going to try and with, you know, with not just with law enforcement against prohibition, but with some other people that are getting involved. But if the mayor wanted to offer me a big city commissioner job and said, hey, we're going to fix this. Let's see how we do it. I would take it. I'm not I'm not going to shy away from backing up my words. Uh, so we're, we'll see how it goes. And everything is on the table right now. This cost me money and this cost me tons of time. But this is something we have to do. So as long as people want me to help in this, I'm going to. Well, that's great, Michael. And uh, I would love to see you as as hailed as, as a, the next police commissioner of Baltimore or somewhere else. I mean, you're the kind of person that should be a police commissioner. You're the kind of person that should be, you know, overseeing this kind of thing. Somebody that actually sees the problems and, and sees the devastation of the war on drugs, the devastation of the way policing is going down. I mean, that's that's really the only way I can see changing this. Obviously, any, any change is going to come from the people, ultimately. So that's why I do this podcast. That's why I'm talking to you today. So, Michael, keep up the great work. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, how can people reach out to you how can people find you obviously you got your twitter account which you're very active on so just let everybody know all the ways they can find you and follow what you're doing yeah i don't mind twitter that's at michael a wood jr with just the jr we just set up a website that's michael a wood jr.net or they can contact me through linkedin i'm trying to be as open and receptive to everyone as i as i possibly can so that we can keep this discussion for it and hopefully you can do the same michael wood thank you so much for coming on the show and keep up the great work no problem mark thank you Whew. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael A. Wood. And wow, I mean, I only read a sampling of some of the stuff he, he's been tweeting out. And I highly recommend, again, go and follow him on Twitter at Michael A. Wood Jr. But I mean, he's really doing a service by exposing a lot of the stuff that he has seen go on inside the Baltimore Police Department. And as he said, he's heard from many other officers. We've seen a lot of video evidence. It's very clear there's a problem with the way policing is done in this country. I mean, no matter what your political viewpoint is, if you're the most remote, reasonable person, you have to look at a lot of this stuff and say, this is wrong. I mean, stopping thousands of people upon the street and illegally searching them, that's wrong. Kicking someone in the face while they're on the ground handcuffed, no matter what their crime or suspected crime, because none of these people have been convicted, by the way. It's wrong. A guy getting a broken neck in the back of a police van. I'm sorry. There's no way that just happens by accident. There's just not. 
It's wrong. It's all wrong. And more people need to be like Michael Wood. I mean, it really reminds me of my conversation with Rayford Davis. We'll, of course, link to that in the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 128. He, too, was a police officer who saw a lot of wrong with the system, but it took getting removed from the system, also by an injury. Rayford Davis was removed from the force due to an injury as well. And it was really just that, that taking that step back that really solidified his strength to sort of speak out and become an activist on this stuff. What we really need is to get the, the, the current police officers to also take this attitude, to see things, to out their commanding officers, to out each other, and, and not in a witch hunt, but when there are crimes going on, and a lot of these are crimes. It's, it's somewhat ironic, because these, to me, are, are when, I, when I look at this stuff, and I see a, a suspect on the ground having his face kicked in, a lot of people see that suspect, and they say, there's that criminal, and there's the cop, there's the peace officer. But when I see stuff like this, I I see it the other way around. I see a guy in handcuffs on the ground as a victim. At worst, he's probably suspected of dealing drugs, of consensually exchanging money and a substance with another adult. That's what it is. He might not like drug use. He might not think they're healthy. (laughs) A lot of the FDA-approved drugs aren't healthy too, guys. A lot of stuff we do, alcohol ain't healthy. Alcohol kills more people than any other drug in the United States. Think about that for a second. But nobody's getting their heads bashed in over alcohol. Well, maybe in some barroom fights and that kind of thing. That's another story. I mean, we saw how the 20s turned out. It essentially created the mafia. And by listening to what Michael says, in many ways, it sounds like many of these police departments are acting like the mafia. Yeah, Keep our problems inside. But we put on this this face, this united front. We're going to take care of our problems. We're going to take care of those other people. That's not what policing should be, guys. It's just not. You know? I don't want to end police. I don't want to end the fire department. I want to end how a lot of that stuff is funded. Sure. That's a conversation. But we need to change the way it's perceived. What is the role of a police officer? I love what Michael Wood was saying. Have police officers clean out their neighborhood. Have promotions based on who's got the best neighborhood. Who's got the least trash on the street. Why can't police officers be out sweeping during the day instead of just driving around looking for people to pull over? Hey, if you see a crime, if a police officer sees a crime in progress, a real crime, somebody being assaulted, somebody being robbed, I want them there. I want them to stop it. I want regular citizens to step in and stop it too. But that's not what policing is in the United States right now. Policing, to move up in the police force. I spoke with Dale Carson, a former police officer who's now a criminal defense attorney, and he broke this whole thing down, how police officers get promotions. It's all based on that sheet. You check off the arrests. I mean, it's a numbers game. That's all it is. It's not about really protecting the community. It's not about if they're really making things better for people. You're promoted based on arrests. And the fact is, the vast majority of things that are illegal in this country are victimless crimes. They're not real crimes. If there's no victim, there's no crime. At least that's my view. It's obviously not the view shared by many, or else we wouldn't have these problems. And there's no overnight change. I don't expect to see happy-go-lucky policemen twirling their batons and picking up trash tomorrow when I get out of bed. But, I mean, every single police officer is a human being like myself, like whoever's listening to this right now, like Michael A. Wood. And we need to treat them like people, and we need to foster a system where they treat everyone else like people, too. And my hope is that people like Michael Wood, people like Rayford Davis, people like Dale Carson, speaking out about this stuff, informing people about how the system really works, will help change that system. 
Now, the anarchists out there will tell me, no, you can't change the system. The system's corrupt. Cool. What the hell are you doing to change it? I'm sorry. I'm not trying to go on a rant on, on the apolitical uh, anarchist right now. I've done that quite enough already. But hey, ranting's what I do. At least on the end of the show, I do a nice little interview, and then I just I just open my mouth and let it flow. <laughs> At this coming Monday, speaking of crimes, we're going to be returning to a wonderful feature we do here at Lines of Liberty. It's a little something called... The Felony Report. The Felony Report. That's right. I'll be welcoming in my fellow Lions of Liberty co-founder, one of four of us, Mr. John Odermatt, back in for another edition of The Felony Report, where we take a look at anything and everything felony-related. Of course, John does his weekly column, Felony Friday. You can find all of that at lionsofliberty.com slash felony friday. You can find all past editions of this very show at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. We're going to keep putting them out every single Monday and Thursday. You can, of course, hear us on the weekends at libertytalk.fm at 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturdays and Sundays. You can also hear us throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network at lrn.fm. Guys, have I invited you to our private Facebook group yet, the Lions of Liberty Forum? Well, come on by. Search for it, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Stop on in. Have some conversations with myself, with our fellow contributors. That's why we're doing this. That's what this is all about. It's about having a conversation. You can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. There's so many ways to communicate with us. And as long as you guys keep popping in, we've had a lot of new memberships lately at the forum. As long as you guys keep coming and listening to this show and talking to us and reading our website, lionsofliberty.com, we'll keep doing it. It's that simple, guys. Till this Thursday, until the felony report, why don't you go ahead and live long and live free. Thank you.